If you're able, please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. The passage this morning comes from John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is has gone after him. This is God's word. Please be seated. And if you have your Bible, please keep it open to John chapter 12 as we pray together this morning. Lord, we ask, as we do every week, that as we open your word today, uh, that you would be at work in this place, that you would captivate our hearts that you would author in us a faith that overflows in praise and gratitude. Um, Lord, we ask that as we look specifically at John chapter 12 this morning, that your word would do its work in us and that we would know you more for having spent this time here together in this passage. We are grateful for you and more than anything for your son and for his love for us and sacrifice on our behalf. And it is in his name that we come before you today with our praise and with this prayer. Amen. This morning, as we reopen the Gospel of John, we are reaching a significant milestone in this narrative. We've worked through 11 chapters of this book so far, about half of its total length. And what's interesting to me about that is that those 11 chapters that we have worked through so far have covered roughly three years of Jesus's ministry as he's traveled around from town to town with his disciples and periodically down to Jerusalem to visit the temple. But in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus will arrive in Jerusalem for the last time. And while the first 11 chapters of this book covered three years of Jesus's ministry, the next 10 chapters will cover about a week. The pace slows way, way down as John draws attention to these final days of Jesus's ministry. Now, that says something important to us about John's emphasis. He's budgeted about half of his total length to just these seven days. It begins here in this passage that we're looking at this morning in a scene that has come to be known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The people in the city are, to say the very least, excited about Jesus. Ancient historians recorded that there were somewhere between 500,000 and 
a million people who have traveled to the city of Jerusalem, pilgrims who have come there to observe the Passover. So the city is just jam-packed. Jewish people have come from all over for this important Jewish holiday, and the city is full to the brim with people, all of whom are ready to commemorate a holiday that, is, that was established the night that God delivered his people from slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt. And these people are pumped for Jesus' arrival. They pull out all the stops to welcome him to the city. They join an impromptu parade for him, and their excitement is evident in the way that they joyfully cheer for him as he walks along. But one thing that's always interested and intrigued me is the fact that by the end of this week that John is about to cover, these same people will be demanding Jesus's execution. It can be easy, I think, to miss that because, as we already know, John's pace is going to slow way down. So it won't be until chapter 19 but they will literally go from throwing him a parade to cheering for his crucifixion in four days. It's a remarkable about-face that makes us wonder why they were so excited about him in the first place, and then what could possibly make them turn on him so quickly. This passage, I think, helps us understand their rapid change of opinion by demonstrating that there is a big difference between knowing things about Jesus and actually knowing him. We understand that, I think, when it comes to other things in life. Anyone who's ever been skydiving or broken a bone or eaten an apple pie knows that there's a significant difference between knowing about those things and actually doing them. But when it comes to knowing Jesus, the stakes are higher, to say the least. Because merely knowing things about Jesus Jesus, will inevitably result in anger and resentment toward him, while actually knowing him is where we find salvation and lasting joy. The giant crowds that have formed to celebrate Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem know things about him, but they don't know him at all. And that difference will cause them to turn on him, to become angry with him, and within just a few days be calling for the execution of a man that they were just cheering for. As we open the passage, Jesus is in the town of Bethany, about two miles or so outside of Jerusalem. It's the hometown of a man named Lazarus and his family, who we met in chapter 11. Jesus arrived there in chapter 11, a few days after Lazarus had died. And after meeting with Lazarus's sisters, he went to the tomb where Lazarus was buried, and after the tomb was opened, Jesus called Lazarus out, and in front of dozens of witnesses, Lazarus came back from death and walked out. Now, predictably, that miracle has attracted lots of attention. The eyewitness testimony of all the people who were there to see it has spread among the Jewish people, and among all the incredible things that Jesus did throughout his ministry, this was... I'm sure you'd agree, the most sensational, the most incredible. And people wanted to see Jesus' wonder-working power for themselves. So when they hear that he's back in Bethany, they flock to this small town to see him. John tells us that a large crowd has gathered to see Jesus and to see Lazarus himself. And with that crowd... The fears of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are being realized. 
Back in chapter 11, you may remember that after Lazarus' resurrection, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the leading council of the Jewish people, had a meeting to discuss the situation. Jesus was causing a disruption. And people were talking about him, and they feared, these leaders feared, that Rome would come down and clean house in order to keep things from getting out of hand. And so they resolved in chapter 11 to have Jesus killed. But now, the situation has gotten even worse. More and more people are seeking Jesus, and Lazarus too. And so they say in chapter 12, verse 10, that Lazarus must die also. Now that verse about their wicked intent signals two important things to us this morning. Things that will drive the story both to exactly where God wills it to go and where Christ is purposefully walking, to the cross itself. First, it reveals these Jewish leaders' willingness to do evil to preserve their positions of power and honor. They hold their titles as leaders and landowners and members of Israel's aristocracy simply by the allowance of Roman authority. It's a very tenuous situation, and everything can be taken away overnight if Rome says so, and they know that. So they have to manage things in Jerusalem in order to keep themselves in power and in order to protect their interests. So in order to do that, in order to protect their interests, they are willing to put Lazarus to death. It's a mindset that will inevitably lead to the cross where they will demand that innocent blood is spilled so that their own will be spared. Secondly, their decision to have Lazarus killed reveals to us the scope of the enthusiasm about Jesus that has spread throughout the area. People throughout the Jewish world and beyond, as we'll see in the passage we will look at after the missions conference, the next passage in John, are seeking Jesus and following him. Already, people had rallied around Jesus to such a degree that the Jewish leaders have decided to put him to death. But now, as Jesus returns to Bethany, where word of his uh, resurrecting power has originated, people are, even more people are joining this growing movement, so many that the Jewish leaders decide that something else must be done. They are scrambling to get control of the situation because it's getting out of hand. And even though these leaders are making wicked plans and are villains for their desire to have both Jesus and Lazarus killed, there is a, an important lesson for us in their actions. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, these plans that they've made to have people killed are a significant violation of the law that these men have been called to uphold and have committed their lives to. So they know that their plans are villainous, but they are willing to do this evil, and they have even justified it in their minds as a necessary thing for the good of the nation because their backs are against the wall. They know that it is a violation of God's law, a law that they have committed to heart. And I wonder how often do we do similar things? How often do we justify our actions in the same way? When we feel threatened or neglected or backed into a corner like they were, when our livelihood is jeopardized or our interests are compromised, 
how easily we justify behavior that we might otherwise condemn as sinful. We learn from the Pharisees in this passage that it is easy to justify sin when we feel cornered. We flee towards sin. We even call it just when we feel like we have no other choice. These leaders had another choice, of course, just as we always do. With the resurrected Lazarus before them and the nation of God's people turning toward Christ, they have compelling reasons to put their own trust in Christ. But doing so would be incredibly risky for them. They know that turning toward Jesus may cost them everything. And so with their livelihoods at risk and their honored positions of power on the line, they run headlong into sin, murderous, preposterously wicked sin. It's a moment that is similar to another from Israel's history from Numbers 13 and 14 that is recorded after the people of God had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. God led his people to the land that he had promised to give them, the land of their ancestor Abraham that God had given to him as an inheritance, but it is occupied by other people. And so the Israelites send 12 spies into the land to travel through the land and report back. And after 40 days, the spies return and they tell everyone how rich and plentiful this land is, but also how the people who live there are fearsome and well-armed and live in fortified cities. And so the people of Israel disagree about what to do. A few of them want to go in to trust God to continue to provide for them, but the most of them are afraid. And they think that they will be crushed by the military might of these cities that they will face. And so they grumble against Moses. And then he tells them, do not rebel against the Lord. He is with us. Do not fear them. That is his counsel to these people, and their response to his counsel is swift. The very next verse, Numbers 14.10, says that they were going to stone Moses to death before God stopped them from doing it. In fear, backed into a corner, they wanted to commit a murder. It sounds eerily familiar to the way that these Jewish leaders are thinking in John 12. And how easily we justify sin in the same way, because we have the very same habits that these people did. It's a compelling and convicting reminder that men and women made in God's image but stained with sin are really, really good at the mental gymnastics that we use to justify the sin that our fallen hearts crave, especially when we feel that our safety is at risk. We think of people like these Jewish leaders simply as the villains of the story, as if they are the ancient equivalent of some movie villain from a Disney movie or a James Bond movie whose only character trait is to be bad. But in reality, they are like all of us, stained with sinful habits like selfishness and pride. They are scared and cornered, and they're talking themselves into sin and terrible wickedness. And rather than turn in humility toward Christ, they try to destroy evidence of his divinity because they think it will protect them to do so. 
And if we have anything to learn from them and from the ancient Israelites who were afraid to go where God was leading, it's that we must continually and purposefully remember that our strength and our safety are found in God's love for us in Christ. No fortified city, no Roman might, no economic downturn, no physical threat or illness, no political movement can diminish or remove it. And clinging to that, we will be free of the longing to do what we know is wrong, though that will not be what happens in the city of Jerusalem. The next day, as Jesus approaches the city, there is an enormous crowd waiting for him there. John tells us that when they heard that he was coming, word has spread and people have assembled and they are ready. It's a scene that reminds me of something like a celebration parade after a championship or a Super Bowl victory. After the Patriots' last championship, people showed up hours early. They lined the streets downtown. They wore their jerseys, and they waited for the players to show up so that they could lose their minds and cheer and tell themselves that Tom Brady would never leave them or forsake them. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem, it's easy to picture the scene. Someone sees him coming in the distance, and he runs to tell the waiting crowds that Jesus is about to arrive. And the celebration was one to remember. Thousands and thousands crowded the streets, and they took branches of palm trees, John tells us, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The other gospel writers even noted that most of the people took off their cloaks and laid them in the road for Jesus to walk on, sort of like an ancient red carpet treatment. John simply says that they went out to meet him. They didn't even wait for him to pass by. They were so excited to see him that they went to him and mobbed around him in adoration and praise. How can we make sense of this sudden groundswell of support? And more importantly, how do we understand it knowing that in four days they will have completely turned on him? Not just by tempering their excitement about him, but by cheering for his condemnation and death. There are clues in this passage that help us answer these questions. Among all the gospel writers, well, it's important to note, first of all, that all the gospel writers record this scene, but among all the gospel writers, only John tells us that this crowd was celebrating with palm branches, waving them around as Jesus walked by. It's become a tradition for many modern churches at, as well, even here at Westgate. Every year on the Sunday before Easter, the day known as Palm Sunday, kids in churches all over the world parade around with palm branches waving them and, you know, whacking one another with them as we join in celebrating Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Years and years of that tradition have made it feel ordinary to us, something that we do, but we don't really think much about. In John's gospel, though, it is a detail that reveals something that we do. It reveals something about people's opinion of Jesus and their hopes for the future. For Jews in the first century, palm branches were an important symbol. They were used 
uh, during one religious holiday, but not during Passover, which is about to take place. So there isn't any religious tradition that has caused this spontaneous palm branch party in the streets of the city. Instead, the crowd's use of these branches is a different kind of statement altogether. It began a couple of centuries before Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem when a Jewish warrior named Simon the Maccabee successfully drove an occupying force out of the city, liberating the people from oppression. And afterward, people waved palm branches in celebration. Later, when Jewish revolutionary fighters rose up to declare their independence from Roman authority, palm branches were again used as a symbol of Jewish revolution and independence. It was such an important symbol for that movement, for the Jewish independent movement, that people actually melted down coins that had the emperor's face printed on them and minted new coins that had palm branches on them instead. So by the first century, the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism and the hope of independence and the revolutionary spirit that characterized a people long held under Roman authority. Their choice to wave palm branches during Jesus's arrival tells us something important about their hopes and their expectations for him. And likewise, their cry of Hosanna reveals something to us about their hopes and how they understood Jesus. It's a quotation from Psalm 118, a very well-known part of the Old Testament for Jewish worshipers in the ancient world. It was sung regularly. It played an important role in several significant holiday celebrations, and by the time of Jesus's ministry, it had come to be understood as a messianic promise, a promise that a Savior would come. Hosanna, that word, Hosanna, is just a Hebrew plea for salvation. It literally means save us. If you turn to Psalm 118, verse 25 in your Bible, it probably doesn't say Hosanna there. It simply has been translated into English for you and says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Over time, this word, Hosanna, had become something of a rallying cry, and all four gospel writers note that this is what people were chanting as Jesus walked along the streets. Hosanna is followed in Psalm 118 with the words, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. According to Psalm 118, it is this blessed one who will save his people, who will deliver them from their enemies, and who will bring them into safety and the glory of God's presence. It was the messianic hope of this nation that God would send a Savior to them. And as the people shout these words, it's clear that they think that Jesus is the man that God has sent to free them. But John is careful to note that the people say one other thing after blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They add words that are not in Psalm 118 when they say, even the king of Israel. It's not part of Psalm 118, but it does clarify how they understand the promise of that passage. Taken together, the palm branches, the lines from Psalm 118, and the addition of the title, the King of Israel, we begin to understand how this crowd understood Jesus. For them, he was a liberator, 
a freedom fighter, and their ticket to independence. He was the one who would fight for them, who would make Israel great again, and who would secure their place as a nation worthy of respect. For as long as these people can remember, and in all the history of their nation that they've learned, they have been through cycles of freedom and captivity over and over and over again. But their attempts to rise up against Rome have been utterly demolished. They have no chance against such an adversary until they hear about a man who can raise the dead. Looking to Jesus, they see their ticket out of oppression. And understanding this, it's easier for us to grasp why they were so excited and why the chief priests and the leaders of this nation are afraid. The people are calling him their king. They are waving palm branches, the national symbol of revolution. Not only is this going to attract unwanted Roman attention, but the chief priests and the Pharisees are probably getting nervous about whether this crowd will hold them in such high esteem anymore. They say to one another in the last verse of our passage this morning, verse 19, look, the world has gone after him. Because Jesus has captivated the hearts of these people, or at least he's given them hope that he is the liberator that they have been waiting for. And in what's become a recurring theme in John's gospel, there is a certain irony involved here. Because Jesus is a liberator. He is a chain breaker and a deliverer. The people are right to rejoice in his coming, and they are right to call him a king because he is the king of kings. But they do not know, they do not know the scope of his salvation or the way that he will win it. And they do not know that what Jesus came to free them from is an enemy that is greater than Rome, or that the people he came to set free are from every nation and tribe and tongue. So in four days' time, when they realize that he isn't who they thought he was, they will reject the man that they welcome to their city with cries of Hosanna. And the reason... For this confusion and for their change of attitude toward Jesus, this dramatic change of attitude toward him could be boiled down to the observation that these people know things about Jesus, but they don't know him at all. They know that he can raise the dead. They know that he can feed the hungry and heal the sick. They know that God has promised to send a Savior. They know that they are oppressed, and they know that Jesus is powerful. They know things about him, but they do not know him. So they form their own expectations about him that have no relationship whatsoever to what he himself plans to accomplish. And when those expectations, when their expectations are not met, they turn on him in anger. And for 2,000 years since, people have been doing the same thing. We may know things about Jesus, that he is powerful, that he is compassionate, that he is a savior, but if we do not know him, we will make our own expectations of him that probably will not align 
with his own. If we only know about him, we will do what these people did. We will make him the champion of our cause, our goals, and our priorities. We will use him as a means to an end. And when he does not meet our expectations, when he does not do what we wanted him to do, we will be frustrated and confused. When he didn't take up a sword and ride into battle against Rome, the people who had cheered for him realized that he wasn't the savior that they tried to make him. And the same will happen to us when he does not protect us from some illness or from some family tragedy, when he does not prevent a disaster, when we are tempted to wonder whether he is really all that powerful or compassionate or wonder whether he is a savior at all. It will happen because... He has not met the expectations that we imposed on him. Someone who only knows things about Jesus will try to make him into something he's not and will eventually be disappointed to realize that he is not the Savior that they demanded. But someone who truly knows him will instead rejoice in the Savior that he is. And John is here to help us become that type of people. He slows down the pace, slows it way down, because the events that are about to unfold over the next week in Jerusalem, which we will see, they will show us and we will come to know exactly what sort of king he is and how he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of salvation. Jesus' actions in this scene here in chapter 12 help us understand what I mean by that. He reveals through symbolic actions of his own what sort of Savior he is. Jesus found a young donkey, John says, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those books, Jesus tells his disciples to go. He tells them where they will find a donkey for him. He even tells them exactly what they should say and what people will say to them in response. It reveals that Jesus is in complete control, that no one is taking him by force and making him king like they tried to do in chapter 6. But John doesn't do any of that. He doesn't record any of those conversations at all. He jumps ahead to the moment that Jesus sits down on the donkey. That's the thing that John wants us to notice. It's the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is an obscure little book that doesn't get a lot of attention, partly because of the fact that it's full of bizarre visions that can be really difficult to understand, but one of them is straightforward. It's pretty cut and dry. The Savior of God's people will come to them seated on a donkey. Jesus is telling us about himself, about his mission, and about who he is in this action. He is inviting the people in this crowd and those reading this account to know him rather than merely to know about him. The first thing he wants to make clear is perhaps the most obvious, that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the king of promise, the Savior who was promised that God would send and the one who brings deliverance and salvation. But more than that, he is revealing how he will do it. Zechariah 9 says that the Savior will come not with a sword and an army, and not on a war horse, but humble and mounted on a donkey. He will not come to fight a war against Rome, but will, 
according to Zechariah 9, cut off the chariot of Israel and the war horse from Jerusalem, and he shall speak peace to the nations. The people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead knew things about him, so they thought they knew him, and they called him a king. But he was made in their image, a king fashioned after their desires, according to their desires and for their purposes. He was a means to their end. But the moment that Jesus took his seat on that donkey, he said, let me tell you who I really am. Let me show you what sort of king I am. Jesus is the king who conquers not with violent conquest, but by giving himself up to a violent mob. He is the king who rises to glory, not by being lifted up on a throne, but by being lifted up on a cross, not by receiving a crown made of gold, but one made of thorns. We see that here in John 12, when John casually mentions that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when he was glorified, then they remembered. Any observer on Palm Sunday, anyone who was there that morning would have thought that hundreds of thousands of cheering supporters, welcoming and literally laying their cloaks on the road for Jesus was surely a glorifying thing. It's how we glorify the people that we regard most highly. We literally roll out red carpets for people like movie stars to walk on. <clears throat> but this crush of cheering and hopeful people is not the moment that Jesus is glorified. That moment is to come because Jesus is the King whose glory is revealed in His grace, who arrives humble and seated on a beast of burden. He is the King who came to save by giving His life. He is the King who receives the just wrath of God against the sin of His people who conquers more than Rome and earthly oppression, but breaks the chains of slavery to sin itself. He is the king of Israel, the king of the nations, who speaks peace to the nations and the Lord of God's people. He is victorious, but not in the way that these crowds envisioned. He does it as one who is gentle and lowly in heart, who stepped out of glory to live and die as the servant of all. This is our king, the king of promise who we have waited for. And we joyfully celebrate his coming with cries of Hosanna because we look to him for salvation. But rather than using him to advance our cause, we follow him in the path he walks as it leads to the cross and beyond it into glory. This is how we know him, not merely know about him. It is where we savor the grace of God and truly know what it means to be loved and redeemed. And it is where we find joy that is not fickle or fragile, but lasting and rooted in the eternal glory of our triune God. Let's pray together. Lord, we sing songs this morning. We reflect on this moment of joy when you came to the city of Jerusalem.
to the holy city. And we reflect on and rejoice in the fact that we are not waiting for you to come anymore. We celebrate because you have come. You have come, you have accomplished your mission, and you have saved us by giving your life. In humility, you have saved us. And so, Lord, we turn everything we have to you. We give our hearts to you as the one who gave his life for us. And we unite our voices in praise this morning as people who know the sort of king you are, who truly know you because we have experienced your grace and your humility. We are grateful this morning to come before you in the name of your son. And it's in his name that we lift this prayer and our praise. Amen.